I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're in a series in uh, 1 Corinthians, your part in building a healthy church in a pagan world, and we're actually in a little mini-series in 1 Corinthians about losing our arrogance. We looked at losing our arrogance in an age of arrogance a couple of weeks ago from chapter 4. Last week, losing our arrogance about the tolerance of sin. Uh, this week, we're going to be looking at losing our arrogance about being right. <laughs> what a deal, isn't it true that we, especially I think through the pandemic, we've kind of gotten settled in our minds that we're right and the whole world is wrong, and we need to lose our arrogance a little bit about that. Um, here's the message in one sentence. The reality of God's coming kingdom needs to motivate all that we do, especially how we handle it when we are wronged by other believers. The reality of God's kingdom needs to motivate all we do, especially how we handle it when we are wronged by other believers. Uh, the message this morning is going to be about the fact that Paul's addressing lawsuits that are being taken before the pagan courts to decide disputes between believers and how wrong that is. This is no theoretical matter here in our own nation. It is estimated that there are 40 million lawsuits that are filed every year in the United States. And so, Let's stand for the reading of God's Word this morning as we seek, not just in theory but in practice, to have the reality of God's coming kingdom motivate all that we do, especially how we handle things when we are wronged by other believers. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 8, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have <clears throat> no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Please have a seat. Losing our arrogance about being right means that Christians ought not to take other Christians to court. This is the theme of verses 1 through 5, and Paul is going to attack it seven ways from Sunday so that you will go, oh, I guess what you're saying is that Christians ought not to take one another to court. So notice how verse 1 begins, when one of you has a grievance against another. Um, 
Grievances against members of God's family are inevitable. Now, there are some translations that make this more of an if statement, if one of you has a grievance, and that is grammatically possible. But I think that Paul has in mind the idea, A, the Corinthians are already taking one another to court, and B, it is an inevitability that you have believers around one another long enough, we are going to sin against each other. It's going to happen. So the question isn't if, but really when we have grievances against one another. Now, the way in which Paul puts these words together is not simple, but the idea is one of shock. Paul's shocked that this is happening. How dare you go to be judged by the unrighteous instead of the saints? And by saints here, he doesn't mean some special group of Christians. He means believers. Believers are saints. How dare you go before the unrighteous instead of before the saints? The contrast is clear. The judges of our disputes are either unrighteous courts or they are the saints. Now, what might be the motivation for going to court instead of going to the church? What might be the motivation? I'm going to suggest to you that a key root of civil litigation of brother against brother is covetousness and greed. Now, that's not easily understood by the one who's up to their neck in the grievance. That's not something that's easily seen, that you see your own uh, motivation to be that way. But I want you to notice how Paul puts this section about lawsuits sandwiched between two sin lists that require the church to get involved in her members' personal lives. The first sin list is in chapter 5, verse 10, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. That's a sin list that's trying to describe people who behave wrongly. Chapter 6, verse verse um, 9 and 10 is another sin list, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. By putting this text about lawsuits among believers between these two sin lists, Paul is saying that there's something wrong that's a part of those sin lists by believers who would take other believers to court. Selfishness, a lack of church discipline also are contributors, but the Corinthians are daring to take one another to court. And I have an idea that Paul sees covetousness and greed at the center of it. Now, that's not the reason that's ever given, of course, is it? There's no one who's a believer who says, I'm taking another believer to court because I'm covetousness and I'm covetousness. I'm covetous and greedy. No, nobody, <laughs> nobody says that. Um, I'd like to review for you the seven reasons that I have heard as a pastor when people have explained what their motivation is for taking another Christian to court. Um, the first one, uh, they need to see just how bad they've been. The idea is that this other believer has done such bad things, 
I need to take them to court so that they will know just how bad they've treated me. Well, that might be a motivation, but I want you to know the court will not do that. Reason and experience demonstrate that going to court with another believer will only harden your brother's position. That's all it's going to do. On the other hand, where church mediation is involved, and I've been a part of several of those, I have never seen the process happen without tears on the part of both parties. A second reason that people take other believers to court, anyone that has done this thing as they have done to me cannot be a believer, right? And therefore, they're justified to take them to court. That's the number one reason, by the way, that's been given to me. It is a self-justification because it puts the one bringing the suit in the place of judge, judge not only of their dispute, but judge over the person's eternal destiny. It fails to recognize this stark truth, believers sin, and they sin against one another. It fails to recognize that that is all the more reason why other godly believers need to be involved in resolving the dispute. Third reason, I've already tried all I can to get through to them, but they've actually hardened in their position. Now, let's grant that there are people who have worked very, very hard to get through to another person who has wronged them, and it is quite often true that the more you try, the more that person hardens in their position. In our own minds, it's easy to think that everything that can be done has been done, and we just need to go to court. But this fails to recognize the power and the authority of the church to speak into lives. The church can do what you cannot. Fourth, the person is a person of influence in the church and in the community, and I won't get a fair hearing of my concerns. In other words, they say, well, this person, they're very involved in the church, they may be in leadership in the church, and I, I know that they'd never treat it fairly. Uh, this is the belief that there will be unfairness in the church process, but fairness in the court process. That gives far too little respect to the church and far too much respect to the courts. Further, in the church process, each party can select folks to preside over the issue. In the courts, you just get assigned a judge. Um, fifth, the issues involved in my dispute, are far too complex for church people to decide. They simply do not have the expertise. May I suggest to you that the church has far greater capacity than might be imagined. 
the church can call upon people who do have expertise. There are ministries like peacemakers where there's all kinds of of mediators and arbitrators that have expertise in all kinds of ways that can be called in to be helpful in situations no matter how complex they may be. In fact, those issues can extend even to where you are in a dispute with a brother or sister who goes to another church. I have worked with other pastors, and our elders have worked with other elders in order to bring people together, and it's worked out in a beautiful way. The church has greater capacity than you might imagine. Another reason, number six, uh, the amount of money is too big for the church to know how to deal with. Again, this is a subtle dig at the church's ability, isn't it? Never underestimate the ability of the church, especially if that ability is measured against the ability of the courts. I will take the ability of the church anytime over the ability of the courts. The seventh reason, the, the process is too complicated and will take too long for the church to be bothered by it. This is really an expression perhaps of thinking that, you know, it's going to take a long process and I don't want people to take up all their time and effort and energy and all of that. And it may have a well-intentionedness to it, but may I say it underestimates the church's care for you and your genuine grievance. The church cares about that. And the church leadership cares that injustice be identified, rooted out, and reconciliation take place. Now, <clears throat> there's always the possibility of forbearance, isn't there? In other words, when we're wronged, we just say, well, you know, I'm just going to hold up under that. I'm going to let it go. <clears throat> That's always a possible option for the believer. But <clears throat> the Bible does permit the resolution of conflicts. And at the end of this message, I will share with you several methods by which significant disagreements among believers can be resolved biblically. There's going to be several ways that we have in our toolbox for that. But the first issue should always be simply the question, can I forbear the wrong? Is this, is this something I can just let go? If you can, then by all means do it. But some wrongs, well, some wrongs are just too trivial to stay agitated about, so just forbear it. But if you find that you cannot forbear a wrong, then the rest of this message is for you. Why should we let the church decide such significant personal matters? You know, we live in a world where people think of their own autonomy. Uh, I get to decide my life, and why should the, what business is it of the church to get involved in my affairs? Nothing, nothing is merely personal for the believer. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are organically tied to 
the church, the church universal. And if you're a member of this church, you are organically tied to East White Oak Bible Church. And that will never change unless you are disciplined out of the church, which as we saw last week is a far more frightening thing than we might imagine. You are connected to the church. The church is organically connected to you. What happens to you happens to the church. What happens to the church happens to you. And we have lost sight of that organic connection that cannot be separated. Seems like since my mom died, I've been thinking about her a lot. As I was preparing this message, a memory came up in my mind. When I was uh, junior high, high school, our church, the church we attended, our building was burned down by an arsonist. And uh, the morning after that fire, I woke up and was coming to breakfast, and I noticed my mother crying uncontrollably. Now, this is not something that my mother did hardly at all. In fact, she marveled at the fact that her oldest son cries at the drop of a hat when she herself did not. But um, there she was crying, and that that was an unusual moment in my life, and I discovered her tears were over the fact that our church building had burned down, and what she was crying over wasn't just the loss of a building, but it was her organic connection to those brothers and sisters in the fellowship, and she's feeling the loss for the whole church. And some of you who were here through our church fire in the mid-90s probably have some of those same feelings well up in you. There is an organic connection between believer and church. Nothing is merely personal for the believer. Let's look at verse 2. You're thinking, oh man, this is going to be a long sermon if we're now at verse 2. I'll move faster, I promise. Christians are more competent to judge issues between Christians than we might imagine because God is going to grant Christians authority to judge the world. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Daniel 7.22, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. There's coming a time, brothers and sisters, when we will be sitting in judgment over the world. And Paul's argument is, if saints have that authority one day, Notice his argument, are you incompetent to try trivial cases right now? God calls your so-called complicated situation trivial. And compared to eternity and the judgment that the saints are going to give to the world, every case on this earth is trivial, isn't it? You think it's too complicated? You think that Christians are incapable of judging this dispute? They are more than competent to judge issues between Christians because God's going to grant the saints the authority to judge the world. You know, I read with somewhat bemused interest uh, the uh, statements by John Kerry, who is our 
global climate czar of the United States at the Davos, Switzerland World Economic Forum. Here, here's a portion of what he said. And by the way, I'm not making any, I'm not going on a bunny trail about climate change, so don't worry about that. I just want to comment on what's one thing he said. Here's what he said. When you start to think about it, it's pretty extraordinary that we, select group of human beings, are able to sit in a room and come together and actually talk about saving our planet. In other words, he feels the sense of privilege that he and the others gather in that room are the ones who will be the deciders of the world on the destiny of the planet. My friends, he is an utter fool. He does not sit in judgment on the planet, and he will never sit in judgment on the planet. Instead, you know who's going to sit in judgment on the planet, on the world, according to the authority of God's Word? If you're a believer, you will, and you, and you, and you, and you, you will. One day, we will judge Vladimir Putin Donald Trump, Joe Biden, J.B. Pritzker, your local sheriff, your college professor, your boss. God will grant us authority to judge the world in all of its complexities. And you think that the local church members cannot judge about your grievance because it's too complicated? God calls these so-called complicated situations trivial there are people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're called the unrighteous in this text. God is going to judge the unrighteous through the judgment of the saints. And you want to take your lawsuit to the unrighteous because you think they're more competent and not allow the saints to judge it? That is absurd. Verse 3. Christians are more competent to judge issues between Christians since God will give them authority to judge the angels. Whew. Now, we don't know all that that means. Maybe it's the fallen angels who have rebelled against God. But believers are going to be given authority to judge the angels. How much more competent are believers right here, right now, to judge matters pertaining to this life. Paul is seeing clearly what we often do not see. This life is pretty insignificant to hold on to fiercely. It's just not that important compared to the life to come. Are you trying to say that your little, this world trivia case cannot be judged by the saints? That would be silly. Now, verse 4 is a challenge to interpret. But the meaning, no matter which way you go, is essentially the same. There are some translations that say something like this. If you have a case, <clears throat> appoint the least competent person in the church and you'll be better off than going to the courts. Or it could be, as the ESV translates it here, if you have a case, why are you taking it to people of no standing in the church? Either way, it is saying that we should trust the church with our temporal lives here because the saints will judge 
far more important things later. And so then in verse 5, he concludes this by saying, is it not possible that there is no one in the church competent enough to judge your situation? And Paul says, I say this to your shame. He's aghast that such a situation exists. And so, the conclusion is twofold. First, the things that we consider so important here in this world, things like money and property and ownership, Paul, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we can say God regards all of those things as trivial. They are trivial to God. They are trivial in the light of eternity, and they ought to be trivial to us. And I think that in theory, they are, aren't they? But let it come home to us where we are really seriously wronged. And that's when we're tested as to the real belief system that we hold on to. The second conclusion, if we find it necessary in times where we have been wronged by another believer, how dare we go to the unrighteous to judge these trivial matters between us? Let's instead have the righteous saints who one day will judge the world and the angels judge our own disputes. Christians ought not to take other Christians to court. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> oh, and by the way, before we move on to the next thing, I want to say that it's Christians ought not to take other Christians to court, and this involves a, a, a couple of complications that people want to bring up. They want to say, well, what if they are incorporated? Now, it doesn't say if you're incorporated or if you're not incorporated. Another one is that, well, but they're a believer in another church fellowship. I don't know. We can act, the power of the church can be at work in handling disputes, and we have done so, where we've worked with other elders from other churches to bring together a resolution of disputes between brothers that are from different churches. So, Christians ought not to take other Christians to court. Second, Christians bring shame on themselves when they take other Christians to court. Verse 6, the Corinthians have asserted back in chapter 4, verse 10, that they are so wise, and yet here in verse 6, they do not trust anyone in the church to be wise enough for their dispute. Brother goes to, brother against, uh, goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. This shames their assertion of wisdom. Verse 7, the fact of lawsuits among believers means that it's already a defeat for you, a complete defeat for the church as a whole. The mere existence of such lawsuits in the pagan courts between believers means that the church is completely defeated. Their witness is muted, their mission is derailed, their effectiveness is ruined. Right after I became a pastor, I don't know that I was even 30 years old yet, uh, a situation came in the church fellowship that I was a part of, that I was pastoring, and again, we came to the understanding of the situation only at the very tail end of it. 
We weren't a part of anything at the beginning, okay, which is always a problem. But what had happened was one believer took another believer to court, and in the court, the attorney for the plaintiff, the one bringing the lawsuit, had the defendant on the witness stand and said to him, and I understand that you even are a member of the same church as my client, and you dare do this evil thing against him. So this being in a public forum, this lawsuit, here's how I found out about it. It was on the television news and in all the papers that these two men who were believers in our church were taking one another to court and accusing one another. Welcome to pastoral ministry. Do you imagine, do you imagine that the witness of our church was muted? Do you imagine that our mission was derailed? Do you imagine that our effectiveness in every one of our ministries was ruined? Paul says in verse 7, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? It's far better to be wronged or cheated out of something relatively worthless than to be rendered ineffective in the work of God. If the whole goal of a lawsuit is to win, no matter who wins, it is a total loss for all concerned. Compared to that... Why not, Paul argues, go the route of forbearance? Why not rather be wronged or cheated than to be responsible for the complete defeat of the church? However, verse 8, Paul is also ashamed of something else. He's not just ashamed that believers are taking believers to court. He's ashamed that there is wrong and defrauding that's going on. You see, Paul is not one to say, okay, everybody, you can just go and wrong and defraud one another, and everybody gets to skate free. And there are some people who think that, right? They claim to know Christ, and then they go and wrong and cheat everybody and expect to get off because, well, we're all believers here. No, 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 that's not what Paul's saying. Look at verse 8. But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. In the pagan courts, what mostly determines the outcome is how powerful one's attorney is, not how good a case one has. So imagine the situation at Corinth. Christians wronging and cheating other Christians and taking those wrongs before pagans. Paul's not denying the fact that Christians can wrong and cheat one another, but what Paul is saying is that the church is well-equipped to take care of that. The reason behind the lawsuit can be correct, but the lawsuit itself is utterly sinful. When we say it is wrong to take a believer to court, We are not saying that it's just fine that a Christian wrongs or cheats another Christian. The church must address that wrong. 
So you might say, well, how does that work out in practical terms? I'm glad you asked that because there's all kinds of tools in our toolbox today. I want you to come away with confidence in the church for this. First step is to follow the pattern that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 18. He tells us that if someone wrongs us, we should go to them and tell them they're wrong. And hopefully in the process, you can win your brother. And if they don't hear you, to bring along one or two witnesses to confirm the truth of the matters involved. And then if that person still doesn't hear you, then it's important that you take it to the church to decide, and more particularly, I think it's implying the leaders of the church to be able to engage in that. And so with all of that, there's a variety of options for you to be able to handle disputes among believers, whether they are a part of our church or part of another church. You can have our elders mediate your conflict. If the person goes to another church, you can have a combination of church leaders from both ministries to mediate the conflict. Or you can even select people that are yet third parties that are believers to mediate the conflict. You can work with your elders at finding a mutually acceptable mediator to mediate the conflict. There's ministries, whole ministries set up where they can bring in mediators that are expert in whatever cases you might have to come and be able to mediate the conflict. You can submit the case to non-binding arbitration, either by church leaders or by an outside arbitrator. In other words, they would judge it, and it's not even binding, but it's a way in which you can get the process going. Or you can even submit the case to binding arbitration, either by church leaders or by an outside arbitrator. The point is that there are many, many options. Most of these, I and our elders have been engaged in. We have experienced leaders. We have people who have taken the training by the Peacemakers Ministry for mediation. We have helped people mediate very difficult disputes. The church, my brothers and sisters, is equipped <laughs> for ministry like this. Let me share with you some benefits. The first benefit, obeying God's word brings eternal reward, even if you don't get the result that you want from the dispute that you have. And by the way, you are not guaranteed to get the result you want. By going through the church, that doesn't mean you get the result you want, but you won't get that in the courts either. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed in my experience, everyone flatters himself that his case is so solid that the courts will rule overwhelmingly and immediately in his favor. That just doesn't happen in civil litigation. Secondly, second benefit, it will save you money. According to the National Center for State Courts Civil Litigation Cost Model, the median costs of litigation broken down by case type are as follows. Automobile, 43,000. Premises liability, 54,000. Real property, 66,000. Employment, uh, 88,000. Contract, 91,000. Malpractice, $122,000. You want to guess how much the elders of this church charge for such things? 
zero. And they're willing to get down in the deep and hard things of your life. Why? Because they love you. And they want to serve you. And they want to serve the testimony of this church. It will save you time. And this is more valuable than you might imagine. You think, oh, I have a court date. Oh, yeah, you have a court date. Wonderful. Have you ever heard of the word continuance? It's going to drag out on and on and on until you've almost forgotten what the issues are. And I have seen the emotional cost of folks' disputes dragging out over years and years. And long after they even remember the details of the wrong, they have the emotional pain. So to review, going God's way saves you time, it saves you money, it brings about a God-honoring result, even if in this world you get a decision against you. So I want to share with you some applications. First, being right about things on this earth is not worth very much. You know, the message of the, the, the title of this message is losing our arrogance about being right. So whether it's uh, dealing with a lawsuit or not, being right about things on this earth, frankly, brothers and sisters, it's not worth very much in light of eternity. You know, you can be totally right about your views on COVID and the person sitting next to you can be totally wrong and in eternity, it's not going to matter. You can be right about taxation, about the best modes of transportation, about money management, and a million other things, and you will be a loser because what matters is the kingdom of God. And being right in a dispute that the Bible calls trivial does not matter compared to the glory of the kingdom of God. That's why Paul says to just be wronged rather than damage the testimony to the world of the value of the kingdom of God. Let's not be arrogant about being right. Second, when you have a legal dispute with a brother or a sister, there is a wonderful avenue for pursuing justice and maintaining one's testimony before the world. The church can and is equipped for deciding such cases. Thirdly, your elders are men who are very open and available to talk with you about anything any time. One hard thing is that people often wait too long to do that. They wait until things have festered and infected and gotten worse and worse, and then at the last hour, they go, well, I guess maybe we should try the elders of the church. <laughs> Keep short accounts. And these beautiful men who love you more than you will ever know, will seek to serve you as best they can. Lastly, 
I want to share with you the verses that we shared at the beginning of our service from Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Lord, teach us not just the practical outworking of a text like this. We do pray you would teach us about that, especially when it comes home to us in a, not just a theoretical way, but a practical way. But teach us, more importantly, Lord, the value of your coming kingdom that it would motivate everything we do. That we would set our affections, our minds, on things that are above, not on things on the earth. Lord, I pray that those here in this room who've never put their faith in Jesus as their Savior, that your Spirit would even motivate them through a passage like this to say, I want to be a part of a community that cares for me like that. I want to be organically tied to the church of Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive me of my sin by what you did at the cross. I believe that Jesus died and rose again, and I want to so connect with you and the beautiful community you have made, God, that I want to enjoy that forever. Oh, Lord, make the kingdom of God and the beauty of the church of Jesus Christ a compelling reason for people to put their faith and hope in Christ. And Lord, would you do a work of grace in our fellowship that we could love one another to such a degree that when we have, not if, when we have disputes against one another, we would be able to not just let them go, although we do pray for forbearance, but that we would also, where they are, things that are not able to be foreborne, that we could resolve those disputes without going before the pagans, but that we could resolve them to the glory of God and for the furtherance of your church, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.